Hey, everyone. If you've been enjoying the show, we would really appreciate if you gave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you have available. It would really increase the reach of our show. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Behind the Tofu. A vegan podcast that brings you behind the tofu, exploring underrepresented topics and issues surrounding veganism. On today's episode, we have our friend Angion Grimm Booker. Uh, Grimm is an Afro-Jalagi vegan activist from California who focuses on collective liberation, radical lifestyle changes, and alternative plant-based medicines. Grimm is also an artist who produces and sells handmade jewelry. You can find Grimm on Twitter at Bpuke or on Etsy at Agape Alternative, like Agape as in love. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, that's the intro. Do you have anything you want to say about yourself, Graham? I am a high raw vegan. I'm a highly alkaline vegan. I use alternative medicine, crystal healing. I'm a gardener. I love to garden. I really want a farm. I would love to be able to grow all my own food. That is definitely the goal for me. I just really want to live off the land and just be food self-sufficient. That's pretty much my biggest goal in all of this all of the learning I do and the way I eat is just so I can eventually be able to live off the land I really like that idea a lot because it definitely ties in with some of the stuff that we've sort of been referencing at in regards to um, a vegan stance against capitalism because you know when you're saying about growing your own food and being self-sufficient that means you're not part of you know this money-making system that you know our country and the world is sort of forcing upon us. And I totally agree that I would also love to be at that point of growing my own food and not having to, you know, rely on someone else to provide for me. Pretty much. I would love to live on like a, a vegan commune. I watched the move documentary last night, um, Seth, and I have things to say about it, but we can talk about that. a different. That sounds time. interesting. Yeah, it was about a, it's about a black vegan commune, basically. It's like a family who all lived in one house and, and you know, they brought in people from the fam from like the streets of Philadelphia who needed housing and um, they taught teachings of, of eating a raw diet um, and living off the land and that kind of stuff. Essentially, they were starved out and attacked and brutalized by the Philadelphia police and eventually their house was knocked down and all of them went to prison for 40 wow. years. And it was just because they were radical for the time. And they were one of the first people to really speak out against the, uh, against the, you know, police brutality. Um, and the things that they were saying are basically the same rhetoric we're saying now in 2021. So it's very interesting to, to hear what they were like preaching about, because if you said those things in 2021, nobody would be like, oh, you're radical or you're crazy. They would be like, I, I think at least from my perspective, it would be pretty normal thought process. So that's really interesting. Yes, I don't think I've ever heard of that before. That's definitely, that sounds amazing what they were doing. Um, if it's okay with you, Grim, I'm going to go into an introduction, kind of a history background of raw veganism. Is that okay with you? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. So I wanted to go ahead and say that we, in the first episode, we discussed um, Hindu and Buddhist and um, other, you know, sources of veganism and how those have impacted it and how they inform our, uh, our idea of veganism. But what I, something I touched on then that we didn't really dig deep into uh, then was Pythagoras. So Pythagoras, the famous or infamous Greek philosopher and his followers adhered to a strict raw vegan diet consisting of nothing but herbs and vegetables and drank pure water. They also used alternative medicines um, and they didn't, they abstained from all harm of other creatures. So a lot of 
people who criticize Pythagoras say that he stole this idea from Hindu and Buddhist cultures, but um, there's really no, no way to know if he was influenced by Eastern cultures at this time, um, because as you know, like things were very like kind of separate back then um, in Greek philosophy. So we're not really sure how much of that he actually, you know, derived from other sources. Um, while Hindu and Buddhist religions created mock meats, um, like we talked about in the previous episode, as a way of showing affection and care and really of getting other people to stop eating meat, um, while that was happening, Pythagorean veganism was raw. So they only ate raw foods and they preached that that's what you, how you ate. Um, a lot of it had to do with health, but it also had to do with ethical veganism. Here I have a quote, and this will be source number two on our sources page. Um, it's early human food cultures were plant-based. Major religions such as Hinduism and Buddhism have recommended the vegetarian way of life since their conception. The recorded history of vegetarian nutrition started in the sixth century BC by followers of the Orphic Mysteries. The Greek philosopher Pythagoras is considered the father of ethical vegetarianism. The Pythagorean way of life was followed by a number of important personalities and influenced vegetarian nutrition until the 19th century. Do either of you guys have any comments on that so far? Most of the stuff that you're saying, I haven't really, I haven't really heard of. I haven't really done much research into the history of like where raw veganism first started in other countries. This is really interesting. The oldest written documents, this is also a quote from our second source, uh, the oldest written documents on vegetarianism in Europe back, date back to the 6th century BC by followers of the Orphic Mysteries, like I just said, this religious group banned the sacrifice of animals and the consumption of meat and refused to eat anything animal-based, including eggs. At approximately the same time, the Greek philosopher and mathematician Pythagoras developed his ideas about reincarnation, which led to the avoidance of the consumption of meat. He's considered the father, as I said. Um, it was embraced by a number of prominent classical philosophers and writers and influenced nutrition until the 19th century. Um, so the scientific consideration of raw diets began to shape the way the world thought about nutrition and disease. Through the study of Af Asian, African, and Mediterranean diets, scientists began to realize that longevity and the occurrence of non-communicable diseases such as heart disease, cancer, and diabetes were lower in populations who abstained from animal products. However, the science for a long time was leading people to believe that vegetarianism was related to malnutrition. Over time, it began to become began to be widely recognized that malnutrition is a risk factor of poverty, not veganism. The stigma of malnourished vegans stuck, and we see the impacts of those problems on a daily basis. So basically what was happening was is that they were studying Asian, African, and Mediterranean diets, and they were looking at those people who had made, um, had made these vows of, of uh, poverty, right, who had decided that they didn't want to adhere to uh, capitalism essentially at that time. So um, of course, you know, like Hindu and Buddhists, and then of course the Orphics as well, they all decided that they, you know, were going to be impoverished on purpose. And so um, that kind of led to this mal malnourished vegan stigma because they would see people who were vegan, um, but they were also malnourished, but for different reasons. You guys have any comments on that? I think it's really interesting seeing this history of the mal malnourished vegan because as you were saying, that still happens today. And, you know, people joke, oh, you know, oh, go eat some meat. You'll put, put some meat on your, put some meat on your bones is like, you know, an actual phrase still. And uh, obviously it means like they put the human meat on your bones, but like they mean it in the matter of eating animal flesh. And it's, it, yeah, it, it's really interesting to see how that was, it's not a relatively new thing. It's also interesting to me to see that there are people that we are very, very familiar with, um, such as Pythagoras and other people that were, you know, that we think, hear these names like almost every day. We 
curse the bane of Pythagoras and geometry, whatever. We see these names all the time. We don't hear these other stories about what they believed. Uh, we only see what you know, our schools decide is important for us to know about them. And that really bothers me a little bit. I've never even heard of, now that I'm thinking about it, I've never heard of Pythagoras mentioned at all besides geometry. <laughs> now that you said that. <laughs> Stunned. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's insane to think that one of the biggest uh, vegan activists, right, of our, of if history, it's just completely erased from like his, the fact that he was vegan is erased from history unless you look for it specifically. Um, so it's interesting. So going forward, um, in particular, the reduction of, in the risks of many chronic and degenerative diseases, obesity, ischemic heart disease, diabetes, and certain cancers, and total mortality, as well as increased longevity were attributed to the greater amount of variety of plant foods and their various components, as well as the absence of meat. Protective effects were consistently shown for diets of plant origin, whereas detrimental effects were correlated with the amount of meat consumed. It appeared that the positive effects of plant foods for disease prevention were more important than the adverse effects of meat consumption. So a lot of the success of vegetarian and vegan diets is attributed to the increased consumption of what's called phytochemicals, which are consumed significantly less by meat eaters than vegans and vegetarians. And if you guys look on the sources page, and if you guys look at the document I share with you, um, there's a list of all of these phytochemicals. And at, I wanted to give out this specific example because we talk about phytoestrogens a lot in the vegan community in relationship to soy. And, uh, you know, you've heard these, uh, the stigma of, of soy boys. And if you uh, look at our Twitter, we recently shared a, a tweet tweeted by our last guest, Christine, talking about the stigma of soy boys and where that comes from. We now see that phytoestrogens, the main reason why people are that think that soy, right, causes like breasts increase or whatever, they're actually anti-carcinogenic, antioxidant, and immunomodulary. So like, these are like things that actually are helpful for your body and we don't talk about them as much as we should. So I just wonder how the correlation between soy and estrogen came about when it's not even estrogen from mammals. That's so crazy to me because... No one really besides vegans ever talks about that misconception and how there's actual mammal estrogen in our dairy products. Yeah, so they're like soy boys, right? But they don't realize that they're consuming more uh, estrogen that is recognized by your body as estrogen than people who eat soy on a daily basis because phytoestrogens are not recognized as estrogen in your body. And then even farther than that, like even some of, you know, my own family members, because um, there's a few people in my family who have had breast cancer, and that makes them afraid of soy, because, you know, when, once you have breast cancer, you're not supposed to eat a lot of stuff with estrogen, or that's what they say. I'm not sure, like, I'm not like a big, like, studies person, like, stuff like that, but they say you're not supposed to eat a lot of estrogen. So a lot of the people in my family who have had cancer, like breast cancer, or who know someone who had it, are afraid to eat soy. And I always tell them, I'm like, it's not the soy. Like you're consuming milk. Like you're consuming actual mammal estrogen. Like if that is your fear, then, you know, you should go vegan. They don't really understand that for some reason. And there are a lot of studies that say that if you are a female who's had breast cancer, you're way more likely, it's something like 
60% more likely to get cancer again if you eat a lot of dairy and a lot of milk. But we don't really ever talk about stuff like that, which is just weird to me. Oh, dude, no, dairy is scary as fuck. Look up dairy is scary on YouTube. (laughs) But I I still think that there's definitely a lot of xenophobic uh, relations when it comes to the demonizing of soy. Um, because I think people still see it as just something people from China and the East eat. And, you know, oh, you know, everything, you know, America has this idea that everything that China does must be bad um, in some shape or form. And so because its origin is from there, therefore, oh, let's find some way to make it look horrible. And so therefore, I mean, I could be wrong about that. I mean, there's probably some more particular origins about it. But just from some basic uh, experience understanding of it, I feel like there's got to be some relation with that. That well, makes I, sense. I completely agree with that. But what I was also going to say is, is that a lot of the hate against soy is that soy is like the original replacement, right? It replaced the milk, it replaced the meat, it replaced everything. And there was this one plant that could do everything that animal products could do. And that really bothered the meat and dairy industry. Right. So it's on top of xenophobia, on top of phytoestrogens, all of that together mixed with the dairy lobby, um, I think is what is it makes people the stigma that's attached to soy. Um, it's interesting. Well, that goes back to the just the idea of like threatening capital. I mean, sure, you know, they were still making people were still making money off of soy products. But the fact that it was, you know, threatening their business enterprise, as you were saying, um, you know, and, and sort of like how politicians will use smear campaigns against one another. It's sort of like the same aspect here where they're just saying, oh, well, here's some reason why you're bad and why you shouldn't eat this. Yeah, it's kind of like big tobacco funding anti-vape commercials. <laughs> and I had had a conversation a few days ago with um, one of my, you know, alkaline peers. Um, they were talking about soy and how soy causes cancer and You know, a lot of Asian countries who eat soy have a much lower rate of cancer than people in America do. So, and they really couldn't give me any sources. Most people who, you know, say that soy is bad and it causes cancer, they really can't give sources. And and I mean, it's probably different too. I don't know, like, how soy is prepared in, like, traditional... Asian countries, I was like talking to one of my friends who are Vietnamese and they were like talking about how soy is prepared in Asia versus here. So I don't know if that makes a difference, but I definitely don't like when, like it goes back to what you guys were saying, xenophobia, because a lot of people in Asian countries eat a lot of soy and that that can be part of a healthy diet. I really don't see anything wrong with, you know, eating organic tofu and organic soybeans yeah i mean especially since like there's not added chemicals right from the farming and all that i get that um these vegan these studies coincide with the teachings of dr sebi a well-known advocate for the alkaline raw vegan diet Dr. Sebi denounced modern Western medicine, dubbing it as a poison to the black body. What is interesting is, is that most people denounce Dr. Sebi completely for his teachings that say that we should eat foods that agree with our genetics and biochemistry. 
These ideas are to a certain extent backed up by real peer-reviewed studies, not necessarily the alkalinity of food, but the idea that eating a plant-based diet can be a source of healing and prevention for non-communicable diseases. Furthermore, one particular study has shown that a vegan diet when compared to vegetarian and meat-based diets promotes particular bacteria growth that assists with the prevention of obesity and other metabolic-related issues. Considering that Black individuals have a higher instances of metabolic-related health problems, maybe Dr. Sebi was correct in trying to steer Black people towards plant-based diets. We will do a separate episode specifically on Dr. Sebi after the Nick Cannon doc comes out. Proponents of the alkaline diet, this is a quote from source number nine. Proponents of the alkaline diet believe that most cancers are caused by an acidic environment in the body and that the primary cause of this presumed acidosis is in acid-forming foods. The Western diet is characterized by high intake of animal products and refined carbohydrates with limited consumption of fruit and vegetables and is thus considered to be highly acid-forming. In contrast, the alkaline diet designed to provide more alkaline ions after digestion is rich in fruits and vegetables with limited protein. It decreases acid load and helps to reduce strain on acid detoxification systems. Proponents assume that it will raise systemic pH and that its effects will be assessed by monitoring urine pH. However, there are no scientific studies with, with sufficient control groups to determine whether the alkaline diet helped the cancer, which of course has a lot to do with the fact that people are so against Dr. Sebi and so against the alkaline vegan diet that they don't care to do studies to actually check and see if it's working properly. However, vegan diets in general, as discussed above, have been shown to assist with general quality of life for cancer patients and people with particular types of cancer. So why go raw? A couple studies have discussed the problems with processed vegan diet, but here are a few reasons. One, the processing and heating of plant-based foods leads to a large loss in nutrients from the plant. Quote from, from source number four, cooking removes some nutrients and denatures important enzymes such as microanase and cruciferous vegetables and allianacin garlic that convert certain nutrients into their anti-cancer forms. Cooking food also creates mutagenic and pro-inflammatory compounds. Raw food increases satiety, supports digestion, and normalizes gut transit time. This is in part because raw food is high in fiber, which can help prevent even communicable diseases by not allowing pathogens to stay in the digestive tract for long periods of time. Raw food prevents overeating due to the amount of chewing it requires. The adherence to a raw diet is also associated with an overall increase of quality of life and mental health over the course of a few weeks, and the quality of life continues to increase as the adherence to the diet continues. This is shown in source number four. Raw food has been shown to help and even reverse complications arising from particular autoimmune disorders. See source number six. Raw food leans less on capitalist food systems and feeds into the animal agriculture, feeds less particularly, into the animal agriculture framework. Expand on that, please. Okay. Um, by only buying raw foods, raw individuals are buying either directly from producers, farmers markets, or from secondary or tertiary producers, wholesalers, or grocery outlets, rather than producers farther down the food supply chain like manufacturers or others. This means that they're not paying into as many systems that exploit humans or animals. They're paying for as little suffering as possible. This means that the only systems the raw eater would need to improve would be to be near perfect consumer would be the plant agriculture system due to the exploitation of farm workers. Um, raw foods are also, for the most part, completely compostable and lower waste. They're available in less, and less or no packaging and don't require as much plastic or paper to get from point A to point B. I really love the last point about, you know, being anti-capitalist because I never thought about it that way. And it's a really great way of, you know, putting two and two together. Uh, and, you know, when you think about having processed food, you know, obviously the plastic is an issue, you know, because we praise all these vegan alternatives and vegan mock meats. And sure, they're great for, you know, traditional meat eaters to replace themselves. But, you know, you have to worry about whatever manufacturing equipment has to be created to 
produce the product, whatever people that work in these factories, people that work in the factories to produce the plastic. And yeah, that's really significant. Uh, so when we first looked up raw veganism, the first three headlines were reality check, the five risks of a raw vegan diet, how raw veganism almost killed me, and the top reason, top 10 reasons to go raw. And we're curious, do these headlines match or represent some of your experiences with individuals in your life regarding your raw veganism? Or what are some common misconceptions you see with and within, within, with outside of the vegan sphere? Honestly, one of the biggest problems I think people have when they try to go fully raw or high raw is they really underestimate how much they now have to eat. Number one, because a lot of fruits and vegetables do not have a high calorie content. So I always suggest when people are trying to go high raw or fully raw that they really track their calories and their micronutrients at least for the first few weeks or ideally the first couple months. I eat almost 3,000 calories every single day. So it's not something where you can just eat raw of any fruit and vegetable and then just trust that you're getting enough. It's a very different way of eating than most of us grew up. And if you are not used to like logging your calories or looking at, you know, the nutrient content of your foods, you might miss some of what you're supposed to be getting like a lot of people eat salads which is good depending on what you have in your salad my salads are like a thousand calories I eat and I eat a lot like I will get you guys know those big containers of like salad mixes at the store and like kale and stuff like that I will get an entire container and I will just put what I'm going to put in my salad in there and I will eat the whole thing. Like you can't have tiny salads and tiny 100 calorie smoothies. Like you have to, you know, be getting a lot of food. It's very highly digestible. And, you know, like a, a serving of grapes is only what, like 50 calories. That's another thing. Like people have to know, like they have to plan what type of fruits they're going to be eating too. Like, Berries are very low calorie. Melons are extremely low calorie. I myself eat probably three bushels of bananas a day. And that's a really big part of the calories I eat per day. So, but I plan it all out and I still log my calories every day and my macronutrients every day just to make sure I'm getting enough. Like a lot of people will not do that and they won't eat enough and that will cause you to get very very sick very very sick i feel like that's sort of like so, an, an expansion of what we tell people when you're just going vegan in general you know because of how animal products on their own are um more calorie dense than all plant foods we say oh you know you just got to eat more uh and i had that issue when i was going vegan um so i totally understand and you know i feel like this is like oh well you're, you're not just eating more because you're not eating animal products you're you're when you're avoiding, you know, these cooked grains and starches and beans and such that are more calorie dense, it's like, it's, it's a whole step further. It's very, very similar. What personal insight can you lend about a raw diet besides what you just said? Um, what influenced you to make the change? And how do you think this fits into your personal ideological, cultural and vegan framework? What really made me want to make the change, people are not going to like that I even bring her up. 
Um, I hate Freely. I think she's very bad for the movement, but watching her and other raw vegans videos, like what they what they eat in the days and when they lived in the tropics and stuff like that really inspired me to start looking into other um, raw vegans. If you guys haven't like heard of her, there is a black raw vegan woman on Twitter and her name is um, Shine With Plants and her whole family is very high raw. And watching stuff like that really inspires me. Um, the reason why I even started looking at stuff like this is because I was actually a junk food vegan up until pretty recently, like maybe this time last year. I didn't start being raw vegan until I would say March of last year because of COVID, my job got shut down for two weeks and I was at home bored and I was just gardening and I was watching YouTube videos on raw vegan food combinations and what I eat in the days. And, um, you know, I was watching Dr. Sebi. It's interesting that you guys brought him up. A lot of people do follow Dr. Sebi and Raw Vegan, but I don't know. To be honest, a lot of people think that I just like, I'm a hardcore believer of like Dr. Sebi. I like a lot of the stuff that he says, but I haven't watched like a whole lot of his stuff to where I know like a whole bunch of his rules. Like I know the general guideline there's even some fruits and vegetables that he doesn't like for people to eat. That's why I'm high alkaline. I'm not 100% alkaline. One of the things that he doesn't like is like broccoli and I grow broccoli. So that's, yeah, I like a lot of the stuff he says. He definitely influenced me, not as much as raw veganism did, but um, I was just watching one of his documentaries one day, and I don't know if you guys have seen it, like, in the research, but there was one specific speech that he did, and he was saying that every disease is caused by one thing. There's only one disease, but it's in different parts of the body, and it's mucus buildup. So he was saying that acidic foods cause, cause mucus, um, mucus buildup in different parts of the body, so... Like, I remember he was saying, if there's a mucus buildup in your bronchial tube, that's bronchitis. If it's a mucus buildup in your lungs, it's pneumonia. Like, if it's a mucus buildup in your uterus, it's endometriosis or the yeast infection. So he was just saying that all of these things are led back to your food. And when I was a junk food vegan, I was very, very often sick. But even when even before I had went vegan, I've always had a problem with like cooked food and processed food. Like even some cooked whole foods just make me feel very, very sick for some reason. And that has been pretty much my whole life. Only when I became high raw, could I eat comfortably without getting sick. And I just feel like this is how I was supposed to eat. Basically, like, Ever since I started getting more into raw veganism last year, and I tried it out, I tried out being high raw and eating really high carb diet, high carb um, 
low fat, not as low fat as most raw vegans. Most raw vegans don't eat very much fat at all, but my diet still has a lot of like nuts and seeds and avocados. But I just feel a lot better. I really feel like my body was designed to do this. So um, kind of touching on the, on the mucus thing. Um, so Dr. Sebi, a lot of what he says, like I said, was saying earlier, the, the hate against him is, is so profound that people don't want, don't do actual research, research to kind of see like, oh, is the Usha, uh, is this Usha kind of thing? Is it actually, are they actually doing sufficient research? Should we be trying to replicate the results? You know, that kind of stuff. So there's no real, real, um, way to find out if what everything he is saying is true because nobody is going back and checking his work um and that is something that that bothers me a little bit is that that people deny him so badly that they'd refuse to even see if it's true um but like like you're saying the vegan diet in general um is is has been shown to help with communicable and non-communicable diseases so it would make sense that to a certain degree that being high raw or being a raw vegan would help with that even more that makes a lot of sense yeah people really do hate dr sabi um it is worth noting though a lot of people who are alkaline are not raw in raw spaces i feel like in black raw spaces he's more widely cited i guess think that's because of nipsey i think you know <laughs> there was a really big movement of honestly, I just like started looking at his work actually from my friend who is not vegan, showed me a few of his videos and I really resonated with the ones that I saw. My diet was pretty much already pretty high alkaline because just because I don't eat animal products and I don't eat a lot of processed food. But like I said, there's some fruits and vegetables that are not alkaline that I still do eat, not as much, but. So as you mentioned, raw vegan has a special place in the black community. Many large voices in the black community discuss the importance of a plant-based diet, specifically for black people and people of color. And we've seen this talked about online in many spaces because of you know the high risk of uh, many different diseases. And I take it you agree with this idea specifically about it having this place there. And I'm curious if you could expand on that. A lot of, there are a lot of raw vegans who are black. There are more people who are alkaline than there are raw vegans within the black space, I think. I think the movement is getting bigger, but like I said, the alkaline diet can still have a lot of cooked foods, but they do tend to coincide in some places. A lot of black vegans though, who are raw um, tend to call themselves living foodists like they say they eat living foods instead of raw foods based on the idea that really raw vegan foods are the only foods that we eat that are living everything else is you know dead yeah it's pretty much like fruits and vegetables that are raw are the only living foods so typically you're trying to find more raw vegans who are black, they just typically use the term living foodist. But yeah, within the holistic space, a lot of black people typically do like to be alkaline, which is amazing. I just started, you know, finding more alkaline raw vegans this year. 
And it's just really great to be able to like have people you can bounce off different, like earlier this year, I had had a problem with my health that I pretty much resolved when I tried to um, go fully raw. I don't know if you guys saw my tweets earlier this year. I tried to go fully raw for a month, which went well for the most part. I did make a few mistakes, but I noticed almost an immediate change in my health as I do every time I go fully raw. Yeah, I think it's really good for Black people. And I think that a lot of Black people do tend to go with holistic healing and alternative medicines just because that's ancestral medicine. Like a lot of our elders didn't really use Western medicine. I know my grandma didn't. When I used to go to my house um, in LA where my grandma lives and she is my grandma who is Chalagi, she didn't have Western medicine. She just had herbs and different vitamins and most of it she would get from her garden so we kind of lost that when she died but you know I pretty much revived it and I continue to talk to my other alkaline black women and it's nice to be able to bounce ideas off each other and to learn from each other with what's working with our bodies so um, that kind of folds into our, our next question, but I, I wanted to give a little caveat. I have, I have a similar experience with alternative medicines. Um, my moms are both Wiccan. Um, so in my life, in my framework, like everything, it was always an alternative medicine first. And if that didn't work, then it became go to the doctor, right? But the term alternative medicine has always gotten under my skin a little bit because the term within itself suggests that medicines outside of the Western medicinal framework are alien or different. How do you feel about this characterization? Do you yourself adhere to Western medicine? And of course you already just answered that. I wanted you to kind of unpack your beliefs a little bit more. And then another question is, is like, how does your black and indigenous background kind of inform other, your medicines in general? So yeah, I totally feel you on the alternative medicine. I believe it's the original medicine. Yeah, a lot of the Western medications that we use now are from these original medicines. And then they just added a whole bunch of stuff to it. I'm not sure why. I'm not like a I'm not like a scholar. I don't do a lot of research into these types of things, to tell you the honest truth. All all of my eating is intuitive and all of the things I do as far as medications are intuitive. I personally do not take any type of Western medication at all. There was a time where I was on a lot of medication. Um, I was on a lot of mood stabilizers and then I was taking a lot of painkillers for my, um, I'm not sure what it was, but I was taking a lot of medications. I really did not feel better to tell you the honest truth. And even earlier this year, I was taking a lot of different, not earlier this year, earlier last year, I was taking a lot of pain medications and it didn't make me feel better. It made my body feel pretty badly. So the last thing that I cut out was pain medications. And I'm not telling anyone to do this, but it works for me. I take, um, what is it called? It's white willow bark. And this was one of the things that they use as an active ingredient in aspirin. And that really helped me for pain relief. And I don't have, you know, the gut issues that I had because some of these, medica these medications can really hurt gut health too. And gut health, 
is an extremely big part of your overall health. And it's just better for me in my case to take herbs and different healing plants than the Western medications. They really just do not work for me. And even with, um, when I stopped taking my mood stabilizers, when I just started doing other things like learning meditation, learning, you know, yoga, I got a sound bowl and there are other things, um, like for me, I was diagnosed with psychosis and there's a lot of herbs that really helped me with that as well, especially chamomile. And I just did a lot of research on what ingredient a lot of the medications I was taking were originally made with. And then I just went from there and I replaced everything and I feel a lot better. And I kind of just refuse to take Western medication now. Like I said, it's not going to work for everybody, but for me, I prefer it. And then going back to what you were saying about how, you know, being Afro-Native influenced that, it's just simply because, like I was saying, I never took it growing up. I never took that type of medication, like how you're saying with your mothers. Like it was, alter it was like what they could with the herbs first and then go to the Western medicine. And that's basically how it was for me my whole life. You know, I was taking like, well, of course, my, my grandma wasn't vegan. I was taking like bee pollen for allergies and I was eating papaya seeds for this and, you know, chamomile for that. And I enjoy it. I really do enjoy the idea that everything that we need is just on the earth. I believe that there is a cure for everything in plants. Like I was talking about the other day on Twitter, even poison ivy has medicinal benefits. Like you can turn poison ivy into medication. Like you can use it for arthritis, menstrual problems. Like, and that just really ties into my point. Like, I just don't think that we've discovered every healing property of these herbs yet, or maybe we have, and we just don't know, but I just don't think it's necessary. I think that everything I need is in plants. Yeah, like I was going to say, there's some like things that you keep in your cabinet every single day. Um, so like cayenne pepper with its cat with capsaicin or whatever, however you say it, um, is really good for inflammation, right? There's uh, cinnamon, which is a good antibiotic. Um, there's chamomile, which is good for sleep and anxiety. Uh, there's passion flower. Uh, there's all of these things that you have in your house already that I resonate with a lot with what you're saying, because my parents, like I've told my mom, like, oh, I've been taking these antidepressants and I've been still having a lot of anxiety and having trouble going to sleep. And so she immediately pulled out one of her, one of her uh, books and, you know, made an anxiety blend for sleep for me. Um, and so I think that that's something that if you get into it and if you can afford to, to start trying alternative medicines or like you said, original right. medicines, um, it might work better for you, especially if you're not a white person, right? Um, trying other types of medicines. So, because remember, like you have to remember that the people who developed these types of medicines weren't doing it with other cultures in mind, like, right? Western culture wasn't thinking about the bodies of everybody else. They didn't equally test it on other types of bodies. They really tested it to see if it worked with the genetics of white people, you know, or they, if it was something that they wanted to not subject to white people like syphilis, then they would give black people syphilis and then see if they could, you know, test the treatments on them, shade on, on the Tuskegee Institute. But, um, 
I, I just think it's it's interesting to to remember that the framework that we see our world in is uh, is definitely uh, needs we need to see it through our own I guess personal lenses, and that's really all I was going to say there. Awesome. This is all very insightful, honestly. Like I said, a lot of the things I do are intuitively. So a lot of the stuff that you talked about, like the history of Pythagoras and all that stuff, I truly did not know and probably would never know in my entire life. So that was amazing. <laughs> it's interesting for people to to think about it when, when people are like, oh, well, Pythagoras was, right, was one of the original vegans. That means that veganism is a white thing. No, it does not mean that. It means that it's a Mediterranean thing. And I think that people, um, just because Greek people, right, are perceived as white now, doesn't necessarily mean that Greek and Roman culture is is exactly the same thing as, as Western culture now. Um, because Orphic, the Orphic mysteries, right, those, the people who believe in those religions, those ideas came from Northern Africa and from um, the Middle East. They didn't necessarily just like appear in Western culture and, you know, they aren't a solely white thing. So I wanted to kind of, put a pin in that for people who are going to go back to our first episode and be like, oh, but it is actually a white thing. I don't want to deal with that. All right. Um, so do you have anything you want to promote? Oh, check out my blog, madrabbits.org. Check out Mad Rabbits, check out Agape Alternative on Etsy and check out Be Puke on Twitter. Trust me, you want to follow them on Twitter. They are amazing. Oh, you guys are so um, sweet. Thank you. Uh, my name is Ashley. You can find me on Twitter at Generally Done. My name is Seth. You can find me on Twitter at Bolton Bombers. And this has been Behind the Tofu. Have a great one.